Yeah, today's the day. And this is the day that we start a brand new series called Prepared. So to give you an idea of where we're going, I want to give you a subtitle because it might just give you a little bit more help. Defending your faith without losing your mind. Now here's the situation that many Christians have. Um, if you're not a Christian, this might be one of those, uh, those times that you get a behind-the-scenes look into why Christians are so odd. Uh, one of the difficult things about being a Christian is that you've you got to have so much stuff going around in your head, and you've got this stuff that you've learned, and you're prepared, right? You've got stuff going around in there, and, and you're excited about what you believe, and, you, and, and it's transformed you. You've got lots of information in your head, and now every once in a while, um, you may be walking along, walking by someone, um, and they know, what you, um, they know what you believe, and so they, they kind of just seem to walk by, and they take a shot at you. It's like, it's like a hit and run or a drive-by, a shot at your faith. And don't be mistaken. It's, they're not opening up a conversation. They're not saying, let's go back and forth on this. Um, they're just saying something like, oh, you're a Bible person, right? And you're, you're kind of thrown off balance because it came out of nowhere, and then they move on to the next subject. That was it. That was the whole thing for them. So in your head, you feel like you're spinning. You go, wait, what, what just happened? Like, are we, are we talking about that? Or you just, did you mean something by that? It's one of those moments you go, oh, you're religious, right? You go, uh, yeah. Or Michelle won't, be, uh, Michelle won't be able to go to that because you'll be at church, right, Michelle? Yeah. And then boom, it, it all just moves on and you don't have time to respond. You don't know what to do in your new subject, new topic, new conversation. And it was out there. And you go, well, what am I supposed to do with that? But you don't know how to go on. So you never get a chance to say, well, well hey, wait a minute. Let me tell you about my church. Let me, let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell me what's happening in my life. It's not a real question. It's not a real question. It's just there and then it's gone. Hey, Chad, you go to church, right? And you don't know what to say. You, you, you don't know how to direct the conversation to something positive. There's no way that they're just about to go read a book or to dive deep into a spiritual conversation. It just blows right by you and everything moves on. Then the worst case scenario has got to be family. Maybe it's your uh, father-in-law. And he's never really accepted the fact that you're a Christian and that you drag his daughter to church. And that throws off mealtimes on holidays. Then at those holiday times like Christmas and Easter, he's got an arsenal of like three comments that he rotates through that are all about Christianity. And he kind of throws one out and then he throws another one out a little later on. And he's not asking for answers. He's not asking questions. He's He's just giving you his, his, his way of saying, you know how you know we're not going to talk about this? It's because we're not going to talk about it. And I'm just going to throw it out and then I'm going to move along. No chance for you. And I, I've got my three comments and they're coming back. You can anticipate which one is coming. Um, there's no door that opens. It all just keeps moving on. And maybe you've got a sister-in-law who's very secular. You know, she appears to be religiophobic. Uh, anytime anything hinting of religion comes up, she's right in there ready to shut down all that nonsense. She's not really trying to be critical as much as she is just plain dismissive. Oh, I guess that's in the Bible, right? Um, sorry, I forgot you're Christians. And you're just off balance. You know, what do I do? What do I say with that? Do I just keep quiet? Do I just smile lovingly? She's not really asking a question. Um, she's not really even paying attention. She's just moving right along. If it was a real question, you could say something like, oh, oh you should read this book. Or, or, but you know what? These people, they're not going to read that book. And they're not going to listen to that podcast. And they're not going to suddenly say, please, take me to church with you. They're not even really considering Christianity. But you know how this works, right? After you're at that meal or that gathering or that thing, that time, 
You're driving home. And when you drive home, you come up with this brilliant idea. That one that you go, oh, I should have said that. I can't write it down because I'm driving. But you've got that one-liner, your response, and you've got to wait a whole year before that's going to come up again. And by that time, you've already forgotten it. And it doesn't matter because they moved on to the second barb, the second comment that they use. Um, Now that one-liner, that great thought you had no longer applies. And it's all just really banter, right? It's just human nature. It's just conversation. No one's really trying to be evil or anything, but it's Christians, it would be really nice to have something to say, something ready, something that you had considered, your own one-liner, your own kind of uh, explanation that lets them know that you're serious about what you believe. Yeah, that's true, but it's not a dig that you want to come at them with or, or, or something mean. It's a calm comment that just lets people know that you're serious about your faith. It's not just something you do because you don't have a brain. Now, here's how this plays out. As a culture in the West, people seemingly, um, they have this underground feeling for the most part. And that is that people generally won't take a shot at Jesus. They'll take shots at your church. They'll take shots at the church. They'll take shots at your morality. They'll take shots at other people's morality. They'll take shots at the Bible. They'll take shots at Christians that they've met. They'll take shots at Christians that they've never met but they've heard of or they've seen. Um, They'll take shots at the notion of hell. They'll take shots at what I heard about what you believe. They just don't seem to come right out and say anything about Jesus. So what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is that I'm going to try and give you some thoughts, some thought-out responses to those kind of situations, those fast-moving times, in an effort to move the relationship towards a genuine conversation. So that means that when we come up with some of these lines, you can't add to the end of them, okay? That sort of kills the whole mood. You can't have that kind of an attack on them. Uh, We're thinking more about our preparation, our mental focus, so that these anchor points are places that we've thought over just a little bit more and enable us to feel less rolled over, all right? So the idea of what we're going to do is to look at some stuff that we could do, what to say when there's little time and even less interest. These are not just the things that people say, um, please tell me more of this Jesus whom you follow. These are not those kind of conversations. These are for brief, fleeting moments, and they seem to come all that more frequently. To do this, we're going to start by looking at a guy uh, who knew all about this, what it was like, and all about Jesus. He, uh, he hung out with Jesus a lot. His name is Peter. Peter was a hands-on businessman. He had a fishing business with his brother, Andrew. Very likely, he got into this stuff because his father was in it. And very likely the idea would be that Peter was going to take this business and pass it along to his kids. Um, In their life plan, the way that they saw things going, we would never ever have heard of Peter the fisherman. But one day, and I got to tell you, I just love how that phrase comes in. The way that it changes everything. The way that it, it can fill you with interest and even maybe a little bit of anticipation. But one day, right? But one day, a teacher named Jesus showed up and he preached a little sermon and Peter was taking care of his nets while listening to the sermon because the sermon wasn't in church, wasn't in synagogue. It was just out of the beach where people were. It's probably the middle of the day and Peter had fished all night, so he is tired. So Jesus says, hey, Peter, let's go fishing. 
And Peter's got to look at him with, you know, one of those looks like an, are you serious? What are you thinking kind of look? And he goes, oh yeah, you're a carpenter, right? So fishing, what, what do you know about fishing? They weren't recreationally fishing. This is work fishing. So you don't get how this fish thing works, right? We fish at night with nets. The water is cooler, the fish come up higher, and they swim around where we can grab them. And Jesus says, let's go fishing. So Peter, I don't know, is he polite? Um, does he sense that there's something special about this guy? Whatever, he decides to do it. So they go out fishing, and stuff happens. And if you know the story, you know the stuff. They get all these fish, more than they've ever seen before. It's a really big deal. And as they're coming back to shore, James and John and his brother Andrew all jump into the water from the shore to help haul in all the fish. And Jesus says, hey, I'd like you to follow me. And Peter says, yeah, and I'll bring my brother. And James and John, they're going to come too. Dad, you're going to need to talk to mom. You guys are going to need to take care of the fishing business. But hey, look what we just brought you, all right? This should keep you uh, in good for a while. So they all follow Jesus. But when we say that, sometimes we don't think about what that means. They actually followed Jesus. They walked where Jesus walked. They went where he went. And Peter steps onto the pages of history as an ex-fisherman. He follows Jesus. He learns from Jesus. He believes Jesus. He believes in Jesus and then when Jesus is arrested, his faith goes to zero. He gives up his faith completely when Jesus is arrested. Because messiahs can't be arrested. But Jesus, he's arrested. And then he's crucified. And Peter throws up his hands. Now what am I going to do? Then Peter is the one who peers into an empty tomb. And then, <laughs> then he has breakfast with the resurrected Jesus. What did they have for breakfast that morning? Fish. Irony? Back to the beginning. Back to a reset. And now Peter steps back onto the pages of history as a powerful, dynamic, influential evangelist. And then he begins to write letters, and, and people actually care about what this fisherman has to say. And so Peter lived in a time and a place where it was incredibly dangerous to be a Christian. Peter was eventually arrested, arrested and tradition tells us that he said, I'm not worthy to die like my Savior. The Romans, with their sick sense of humor, say, we can fix that for you. And so they crucify him upside down. And he died for his faith, being faithful, doing God's work. But in one of his little letters that we have called First Peter, we're not really all that creative sometimes, I think, with book naming. There's two of them, so he said, why not slap a one on that one and a two on that one? And that's good enough. Um, in this first letter that Peter wrote, he gives us some extraordinary insight, a fantastic tip on being prepared when people just drop faith in a conversation and then keep right on going. So we're going to look at 1 Peter. You can follow along the screens and your handouts or again in your, uh, your phones there if you'd like to do that. We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3 starting at verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer from, for what is right, 
you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Now, please recall that he lives in the day and age where it was dangerous to be a Christian. He did die for his faith. All of the apostles died for their faith. In our country, we don't suffer much for our faith. We're increasingly saying that we are suffering, but it really works out to inconvenience. It it really works out to people not saying nice things about us. It might impact a job interview. You might have a date that kind of suddenly ends, and people might make jokes at your expenses. There are exceptions. There are exceptions to that. But for most of us, we don't live in fear for our lives because of our Christian faith. Christians in the first century, had a really hard sell. The message of Christianity back then wasn't one religion amongst many. Just pick and choose whatever you'd prefer. Go ahead. It wasn't even, hey, you've got some gods, and I got a god, and my god is better than your god. It was harder than that. The sell that Christianity made in that period, and this is what made it so dangerous. The deal was clear and outspoken. It's not that my god is better than your gods. It's that your gods don't even exist. Our God is the only one. That's a really hard sell. Hard sell in our world where it's all about tolerance and kindness and everybody's equal and no matter what you believe, it's all right. But really hard when you have emperors who consider themselves divine and then legislate that divinity. This became a very political issue in Rome. For Christians to gather and say that Jesus is Lord was for them to say Caesar is not Lord. Caesar is not divine. And all of the gods and all of the Roman worship, well, they're not divine. It turns into a very political thing, not just a religious thing. It's a really dangerous position. So Peter is talking in that world. So even if you suffer for doing good, don't fear and don't be frightened. But it is too hard to just not fear, right? We have to do something instead of fearing. What can we do instead of fearing? And so he goes on, uh, verse 15, but in your hearts revere, which means to to set aside as as precious or to to make it front and center or, or, or to focus on that, to sanctify it, to treat it as holy, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Decide once and for all that Caesar is not your Lord. Christ is your Lord. Decide that he or decide that she is not your Lord. Decide that wealth or popularity is not your Lord. Decide that Jesus is first and everything else is second. He will be the first decision and everything else is subject to Jesus first. And then in that same sentence, because our punctuation is different than Greek punctuation, in Greek this is just one long, huge sentence, it's all tied together, always be prepared, right there, that's our series title, always be prepared to give an answer. And an answer, that's a technical Greek word that means a defense, okay? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone, including your sister-in-law, who asks you for the reason, the reason, the explanation for the hope that you personally, the hope that you personally have. It's not for the theology of all things. What happened to you? 
What's your story? What changed you? What do you think? What do you feel? How does it relate to you? Give a reason for the hope that you have. And it's really important to get this right. So catch the significance here. And, and, and let's gain some clarity. I'm going to tell you what he is not saying that we get confused with because this is the world that we live in. See if any of this has ever come across your plate. What he is not saying is be ready to explain your Christian worldview in a really convincing way. He is not saying be ready to defend the Bible. That can be hard to do. But don't worry, that's not the calling here. It's not a bad idea to know how to do that. It's not a bad idea to learn about that. But that's not the entry point. He's not saying be ready to give a defense for the Crusades or the church throughout history. He's not saying be ready to give a, a defense for Christians who don't behave properly. He's not um, saying be ready to give a defense and an explanation for the entire book of Revelation. Don't worry about all that right now. You need to prepare to give an answer uh, or a defense to everyone who asks you for the hope that you have. You should have a good single statement. You know, maybe like a one-liner. Something that encapsulates the answer to this question. Why have you chosen to follow Jesus? That's it. The rest, the rest is a different day. There are books and books written about the rest. If someone really wants to know the answer to those tough questions, if they really want to know the answers, there's ways to get the answers. It's not that answers don't exist. It's that people kind of want to stump you or attack you. So what we're going to try and do is not fall into that. We're just going to deal with the hope that we have. What you need to do is be prepared for. Whether you're a brand new Christian or whether you've been a Christian for 111 years, you have to be able to answer simply, succinctly, why I personally have chosen to follow Jesus. And I know already that you're feeling very nervous that we're going to have a test and you're going to have to do this. We're not going to have a test. You're not going to have to do this in front of everyone. Relax. But be prepared to defend your hope, to defend your confidence in Christ. You're not arguing for a religion. You're arguing about your hope. Okay, fine. Peter, how do you defend your hope and your confidence in Christ? Peter, it was really simple. It's a simple math equation. Peter's answer is this. Hope equals resurrection. Why do you believe? Pretty simple for me. I watched him die and then ate breakfast with him and some buddies on a beach in less than a week. Died, buried, breakfast. It's very compelling. When somebody predicts their own death and their own resurrection and then does it, you really should listen to that person. So they say, well, what about that parable, Peter? He goes, yeah, you know what? I don't, I don't know about that one either. But you know what? He died. He was buried. And then I had breakfast with him. So I follow him. I'm still dealing with other details as I'm going forward. Peter says, my hope is anchored in an event. The event is the resurrection. I don't have an answer for everything else just yet. That is what I'm talking about. So now when you read the rest of 1 Peter, you're going to see that Peter ties his hope, his very personal hope, into the story of Jesus and the resurrection. So if you go back to the beginning of 1 Peter, chapter 1, go to verse 3. 
He's just starting the letter up, getting it going. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. You've heard of being born again. That's the idea. You have given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter, why have you placed your hope in Jesus? What makes you change everything and live in a new way, even when those people around you think that you've lost your mind? Why? Because he rose from the dead? I know it sounds unbelievable. On the day he was crucified, I was absolutely convinced that it was all done. I had zero faith in him. Then I had breakfast with him. It blew my mind too. Jump down, 121. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Why do you have hope? Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's his summary. That's his one-liner. Now, everything else becomes possible. I can't explain everything to you right now, but I can tell you why I'm not afraid. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're in verse 15. But do this, and the this that he says, but do this, he means the be prepared part. Be prepared to explain why you have decided to follow Jesus. But do this with gentleness. We don't drop the hammer and we don't move into a rah-rah chant and get all up in your face, Jesus, my God is better than your God. It's not about that. It's not a competition and it's not a put down. It's not about name calling or shaming people. Gentleness and respect. And I think this is where we, as the church throughout history, have screwed it up so badly throughout time. This is not about winning debates. It's not about proving that someone's wrong. This is not about arguing, condemning. It's not about name calling. Anybody who believes anything believes it for a reason. Nobody is wrong on purpose. If I was raised the way that you were raised and experienced the things that you experienced, I would very likely believe what you believe. There is no good reason to be disrespectful. It only hurts. It never helps. As he goes on, keeping a clear conscience, which means don't do anything that would cause shame or to break the relationship with any of the people whom you are trying to display Christian values. It argues against you. How you live is just as important or more important than what you say. So keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. There are going to be people who don't believe what you believe. And they are going to look for a reason to not like you. When people are critical of you because you are a Christian, when people are critical of you because of your morality, when people are critical of you because you, there's certain things that you just won't do, the reason that they are critical isn't because they think that you're wrong. The reason that they are critical is because they think that they're wrong. But they don't want to be wrong. You would not believe how many people, 
I meet in conversation. Cheryl gets the same thing as me. Who find out I'm a pastor, she's a pastor's wife, and then the next thing they say is, oh, I'm so sorry, I haven't been to church in a while. They say it like they think I know it. Hey, baby, that's not on me. That's on you. You are welcome to come whenever you can make it. We'd love to have you join us. And I can say that for our podcast too. Those people who are listening, we'd love to meet you. Come on over. We have crossed 22,000 downloads. It's incredible what's going on. So people are listening and they do listen from different places. I don't know how, they just do. Peter is telling us when you live out Christian values, you should expect some pushback, not a safety shield. But don't give anybody a credible reason to be critical of your behavior. You need to have a simple, respectful, clear, concise response that explains why you personally have decided to follow Jesus. Then live a faith that allows other people to say, man, I don't believe all that other Christian fairy tale stuff, but you're good people. I don't want to be a Christian, but if they're all like you, I hope my daughter marries one. I don't want to be one, but I want to hire as many of them as I can. Your words and your behavior matter. Selfless, generous, compassionate living is unassailable. When you meet someone or a group of someone who are selfless, you might not believe what they believe, but you still go back to your car and you say, wow, that was unbelievable. Same thing goes for generous. You might not understand. You might, in fact, be a little bit of afraid of it. You know, everyone's a little afraid that suddenly generosity might be contagious. But it's still amazing to be around. Same thing for compassionate. I don't know if I could ever do that, but I really hope there are more of those people around. And this is why Peter is saying, your behavior matters big time. Your behavior is attractive and it's compelling, and it's magnetic, and tie that in with some good thoughts, and boom, you're the whole package. So about 70 years after Jesus was on earth, in about 100, 110 AD, somewhere around there, Trajan was the emperor of Rome. And all the emperors had different attitudes about emperor worship. He was one who decided that he wanted to emphasize it. It was more political. It's just good for business to deepen your brand image. Being divine really helps with that. But when people worshiped the emperor, they were basically habitually swearing allegiance to the emperor. And under Trajan, under Trajan, persecution broke out in a number of areas of the Roman Empire against Christians because Christians wouldn't swear allegiance to the emperor. Jews had an out. They had already negotiated a, a treaty and a pact that said they didn't have to swear allegiance. But if you were a Gentile and became a Christian, you were not part of that pact. So there was this governor named Pliny the Younger. Here's his ancient second century selfie. It's called a statue. His uncle was called Pliny the Elder, and the elder raised the younger. The younger became a governor in a little province in what we would call modern-day Turkey. So Pliny the Younger, like other governors in the Roman world, would get these letters from the emperor, from the capital, with orders. This is what we want you to do. And so, okay, go around and, and round up all the Christians. They're sketchy. They're traitors. They are against the empire. 
They have bad, dangerous habits. Go get them. So some of these letters are preserved. Um, so you can go and read all this stuff if you're interested. There is a couple of exchanges that are well-documented, well-kept. Um, um, exchanges between Pliny the Younger and Trajan the Emperor. The exchanges sort of say, uh, okay, so we've rounded up some Christians. Uh, now what are we supposed to do with them? We've rounded them up, and here's what we've discovered. I didn't even know what a, great, what a, what a Christian was, oh great emperor, but now that I know, we tortured some. We put some to death. We have several informers who have gotten on the inside, and now we have found out that there are way more Christians than we thought, oh great emperor. And there's not just Christians in the big cities, there's Christians in the suburbs. And they're not just in, in, in the city, they're on farms. And if we round them all up, there are a lot of Christians. We're not sure what to do. We're not allowed to torture Roman citizens, so we're gathering up Christian slaves who are owned by Christian Roman masters that we can't torture, so we're torturing the slaves to find out what's going on with these Christians. We're finding out that there are a lot of Christians, and some of them have been Christians for more than 20 years. What do we do with these folks? Now, in this exchange, Pliny the Younger describes to the emperor what he has discovered about Christians. Seventy years after Jesus. And this is what he writes back to Trajan. You can follow along here. The sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. This is what our spies have snuck in and found out. They get up before work because the first day of the week is a work day. They get up before dawn. Just let that sink in for a moment. Church here starts at 10. Not that most of you would know. They, they meet together and they sing responsibly. Now, don't look around in here when we sing because, you know, there's some of us who kind of believe that this is proper singing process. And we sort of tough it out until the band does their thing. These people in the beginning of the second century got together with scraps of letters that they had collected, and they meet before dawn on a workday, and they get together, and they sing responsibly the words of the hymn, and the words of the hymn that they're singing responsibly are really the only text that they had. So one person sings, and the rest sing it back. This is how they taught the teachings of Jesus. If you are a Christian, this is part of your heritage. And it goes on, and, and, and what they're doing, Christ says to a God, and to bind themselves by oath. And the oath is not to some crime. We were told that they're a group of criminals. We're, we're told that they're traitors and seditionists, that they're going to run against the government. They bind themselves to an oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery not falsify their trust, not to refuse or return a trust when called upon to do so. Oh, great emperor, they might just be the best citizens that we have in the entire region. Why are we arresting them again? They're committed to not committing crimes against each other or against other people. They commit to do that regularly. Now, you can imagine 
in our town of Stouffville or the city or the place, wherever it is that you live, if you're listening to this, can you imagine what would happen if tomorrow morning before dawn, every Christian gathered somewhere and we sang a couple of songs and we made and stated oaths to commit no fraud, no theft, no adultery, no lying, and we did what we said we were going to do, then close in prayer and then go live that way day after day. It would be pretty hard to criticize Christians. You could say that we believe weird stuff, but we'd be the finest citizens and the best neighbors. That's what first century Christians did. That's why Christianity spread so far, so fast, so deeply. And they did all of that on pain of capture, torture, and death. It is possible, it is still possible to convince people around you with the life that you live. And in that life that you're living, season it with snapshots and sound bites of why you believe the way you do, integrated into your regular speech. Pliny goes on. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food. But ordinary, innocent food. This is a big deal. Because the rumor was that Christians ate babies. The rumor was that Christians ate the flesh of babies and drank their blood. Quiz time, into one. Where do you think the non-Christian Gentiles got the idea that Christians ate people's flesh and drank their blood? Where did that come from? Communion. Don't you think that it's pretty cool and deeply significant that we continue to participate in the same practice that Jesus himself instituted way back in the first century? Because Jesus taught in John chapter 6 to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So the rumor was that they eat people. They're cannibals. But that's not what we're seeing, Caesar. The rumors you are hearing aren't true. And that's how we got here. That's why more than 2,000 years later, we are still here. It was because of what they believed and it was because of how they behaved that changed the world. Peter goes on, back in 1 Peter chapter 3. For it is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Did you see the implication of what he just said there? To all of us who pray for the pain to go away, to set me free, to help me out, life is pain. The pain will always be in life. Suffering is inevitable. What you do with it and what you do in it makes all the difference in the world. Since you must and will suffer, why not suffer for doing good instead of suffering for doing evil? If you're going to lose a job, why not lose it for telling the truth instead of because you got caught lying? If you're going to have trouble in your marriage, why not have it for doing the right things instead of doing the wrong things? If you're going to get penalized, get penalized for doing the right things and don't get penalized for doing the wrong things. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered. So if you suffer, you are being just like your Savior. He suffered once for, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus' suffering accomplished something tremendous. His suffering accomplished your salvation and mine. So he says, okay, Christians, be prepared. Be prepared to give an answer. 
Be prepared to give a defense. But while you're preparing to give a defense, get ready because it might just cost you. But that's okay. Because your message is that it cost God something in order to secure your eternity. Now here is the question that you still need to answer. Why have you chosen to follow Jesus? This is the question that you need to answer personally. It can't be a paragraph, a podcast, or a book. When someone drops on you Old Testament violence and miracles and suffering in the world and their bad experience with church or their bad experience with Christians, when all that stuff comes up, all you need to say, the only question that you need to answer, regardless of what the question is, is why you personally have chosen to follow Jesus. Why is your hope anchored in a Jewish carpenter? And I want to make a suggestion about your answer. I think your answer should be very similar to Peter's. That will make it easier for you. Uh, I believe your answer needs to include Jesus as opposed to just saying God. And I believe your answer needs to include the resurrection. We're going to talk more about this next week. Um, and, and surprise, surprise, we're going to talk about it at Easter too. But the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Whether you have thought about it or not, the foundation of your faith is the resurrection. You say, no, 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 that's not true. My life fell apart, and I asked Jesus into my life, and then he changed. But the reason that Jesus made a difference in your life is because Jesus is alive. It's not because you felt a tingle in there some days. He, the reason is he is alive. and It's because he rose from the dead. What you feel in your heart is the presence of a living person. We're going to talk again more about that next week. I, I believe it's essential for you to get comfortable with re weaving the resurrection into the short soundbite answer to why you personally have chosen to follow Jesus. So here's an example. I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. I know it's a really good question, and, and I wonder about that also. But when in doubt, I come back to, uh, I believe that Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead. That's why I follow Jesus. Not because I have great answers to every possible question. I believe Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead. And I'm learning the rest as I go. If you've ever wondered what to do and what to say and you're worried that your story is not exciting or whatever, boil it down. And the reason that you are following Jesus is that you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead. That's it. So let's try saying this together. At least if this is what you believe. If you're a Christian, this is the key to it all. Let's say it out loud together. I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. Every Thanksgiving, we get around the table and you bring up that thing that you always bring up about why Christians are not too smart. Let me tell you, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that he rose from the dead. He changed my life. Every year like this, something comes up and believe, believe me, I want to let you know that Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead. Now here's part two. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, but I don't believe it because the Bible says so it's better than that. Then stop. But I don't believe it because the Bible says so. It's better than that. Let's try saying that part. But I don't believe it because the Bible says so. It's better than that. See you next Thanksgiving. Wait, what? What do you mean it's better than that? How, what, are you, what are you saying? How did that come up? You've thrown me off. Now I'm off balance. 
Say it. Gentleness, full of respect. Let's try the whole thing together. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. But I don't believe it just because the Bible says so. It's better than that. Now you go ahead. Write your own version. That's your hope. That's our hope. That's why we follow Jesus. Next week, we're going to deal with the better than that part. Father, thank you so much for the freedom to talk about these things. And thank you for Peter. We can't imagine the terror of being arrested. And all he had to say was, Caesar is Lord. They probably would have let him go. But he didn't. Forgive us for betraying faith by simply being silent. Forgetting all squirmy and insecure when men and women went before us and didn't just risk their lives, but gave their lives so that we could gather in your name. Holy Spirit, please do something in us in these next three weeks that we would have a boldness that is new and fresh and it would be gentle and it would be respectful because our gentle, respectful Savior gave his life on our behalf so we could have hope. We believe that our Savior Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, but not simply because the Bible says so. It's better than that. Thanks, Jesus. Amen. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes again with all of his holy people. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Thanks for being here. It's better when you are here. It's better when we're together, even if it is March break. Thanks for being here. The more we connect, I believe, the better it gets. So as you get ready to leave, I want to let you know again that you're not walking out. You're being sent. You have a mission. We are Christ-centered. We are spirit-empowered, and we are mission-focused. And that mission is for everyone, everywhere, all the time. Take hope with you and share it liberally as you go.